Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist, strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. This is part two of the deep dive conversation with Orlando Wood, Chief Innovation Officer, System One, and author of Lemon, How the Advertising Brain Turns Sour. In part one, Orlando and I laid out the historical and cultural framework on why advertising creativity has declined. In part two, we will continue to discuss Lemon and propose some solutions. I think that's a good place to go into the culture part of of part three of the book. And I like how music is talked about in that section. There's a discussion of film franchises as well. And I'm curious as to how do you think these things play into subcultures in the sense that there's a predominant culture that I think things become mass market or they become mainstream. Mm -hmm. But Mm -hmm. a, a lot of what I see like I'll use superhero films, for example, as a yeah. well-versed nerd in all of these things and, and lover of geek culture. You know, I remember when these things were still very much in the subculture. They were not considered cool. 15-year-old me would never have imagined Marvel in a billion-dollar per movie kind of world. Mm. So how can we put those two worlds together where a lot of this flattening that people are maybe pushing back against, meaning that, oh, all movies seem the same or all music sounds the same, has its roots and in origins in established subcultures that weren't really looking to go mainstream. You know, how does that play into it? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, there's a, as you rightly say in the book, I talk about film franchises and how they've increased, you know, in popularity and, you know, people, audiences as well over the period. And, you know, I suppose that's what's happened in this period is that, that popular culture has become manufactured. That, you know, when people see an, a success, they try to replicate it and replicate it and replicate it. And, you know, there's so much money tied up in these films these days that there's a, you know, there's a risk of not, <laughs> not replicating it. So you get this replication in film and, you know, often the, of, of course, anything start, things normally start from subcultures, interesting things, and then they're sort of made more popular. I think, I mean, you know, it's interesting because you kind of see it in programming, television programming, you kind of see that we're not, at least in the UK, you know, I can't really comment elsewhere, but we see so many programs today about making things, which is a left brain thing. You see so many programs about, you know, kind of shows about comedy rather than actual real comedy, you know, or, or panel shows talking about things rather than the doing of the thing itself. And it's a, there's, we sort of become a bit risk averse and and also all the the actual things cost money to do so making a sketch show or a sitcom you know is more expensive than than shooting a panel show you know i mean there are very economic reasons why these things are done of course but what it means is if you're going down a kind of a low risk high replicability uh, kind of productivity route to programming or to music uh, popular music you know, you will lose some of its magic and you lose the creative spirit that goes with it. And, you know, what becomes easy to manufacture at scale and in quantities it is not necessarily the sort of thing that's, that's going to move people. 
And that timing factor, I think, is very important in, you know, I'm not a Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours guy, but this idea that one has to grow into their work. For example, I'll use an American example of Seinfeld. You know, people consider it one of the greatest comedies ever made, but it was a middling hit. I wouldn't even say hit. I would say it was a middling show. It's first yeah, no, it, two it years. Might be pulled, right? It might be pulled, you know, yeah. today. There are so many shows that, you know, took a while to sort of get develop a following and then, you yeah. know, it kind of eventually breaks out into the mainstream. You're right. And find their voice. And I think artists, musical artists are like that. And, yeah. and even film franchises are like that, which is where I become somewhat of a defender of the superhero stuff only because... I think in hindsight, we can look back and say, oh, these were going to be successful, but not really. Not at the moment when they started. Mm-hmm. Robert Downey Jr. in Iron Man in 2008 was not what people thought it was going to be. A lot of people were like, what the yeah. hell's Iron Man? And yeah. so, but I think we, we have the time to, taking the time to develop things, there's a value in that. And it seems like the culture flattening happens when we want things to be very quick quick and when we're focused on quantity of output rather than quality of output and the kind of professionalization of industries you know move, takes us away from a craft type mentality of crafting something you certainly see that in advertising and you know and speed with, with which you've got to kind of turn things around as well you know if you don't have time to develop stuff you know you, you kind of you need you need that time to pull together a range of different inputs to create something new you know if you're only got a matter of hours to create something you know it can't be that rich you know it's going to be very difficult to do that and there was a section there where we talked about in the book you mentioned this idea of community shifting and what we think of as community becoming something different and that as a cultural moment and i was curious about that because i i think and i'm just going off memory here you cited like the number of bars pubs closing yes yes yeah that's right and gym memberships yeah no it's funny isn't it going up how how people uh, you know we kind of become very self conscious as a, in the West I would say you know we go to the gym where you know I don't personally but you know people go to the gym and work out doing repetitions in front of a mirror you know rather than where in you know twenty years ago you'd probably be down the pub or the bar with your friends and having a mo- enjoying a moment of betweenness and connection and and community and pubs so pubs are closing and you know there are you know gym memberships you know been rising but this i think that's just symptomatic of the sorts of sort of thing that's happening and it's that you know this lack of betweenness you see and i talk about sketch shows disappearing soap operas disappearing the romantic comedy has almost disappeared yet it's very popular so netflix you know uh, most popular genre is kind of romantic comedy and friends you know there's a i mean there's a real need and 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 kind of desire for this kind of work and and output and programming and advertising actually you know we've tested some really famous old ads that and today you know they're in the top one percent two percent of all ads that that are aired today you know this stuff works and will work today in fact there's a massive opportunity for brands and program makers you know to make this stuff because there's nothing there's nothing it's like we've lost three or four of our five taste buds in the last 15 years we've watch any film from kind of prior to 2000 and i bet you you'll notice a sense of warmth and betweenness and a character and dialogue that is very difficult to find in today's uh, cinema I definitely notice a difference in the music. Yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> the music, yeah. 
music was used in film a lot differently, I think, in mm. that 90s and 80s than it is used now. Like, you don't yeah. really have a true soundtrack and score. You in, in, in most mainstream movies, I find them to be actually pretty silent with the occasional sort of loud action film tends to frenetic. be a little different. There'll be a frenetic rhythmic uh, you yeah, know, kind of use very, of music. Very, very much left so. brain. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, in this community thing, I want to jump back on that for a second because yeah. there's a company, I'm, I'm not sure how much you've seen it there, but they have a lot of ads that run in the subway here. <laughs> so I see it all the time. Okay. And it's called Mirror. Where oh, you, right. you have like a mirror that you can exercise in front of. It's sort of like Peloton. Oh, but really? You stand in front of this screen that's going to be your instructor. So wow. it's very like solo based and Peloton. How, is very, how alone yeah. and self-conscious is that? That's as left brain as it gets. But it's curious to me because I wonder if there's an opportunity to redefine community in the sense that I agree that people are doing more gym based activities. But one of the things I, I offered to a client is that they're doing some of these things actually together and also co-ed. Yeah. Like Tough Mudders are very popular here. These sort of group runs where you got to work as a team and accomplish mm-hmm. something. And mm-hmm. so I, I wonder if that's a data point to reimagine community. Like maybe okay. community doesn't look like yeah. the bar anymore. Maybe it looks like people doing this kind of stuff together while also advancing fitness. I think that can, you know, that can certainly, you could think of it that way and, and you know, propose alternative products, services that, that have this sort of sense of connection and betweenness. And, and, you know, I'm sure that would be very successful. I suppose at the heart of your example, though, is still this idea of a goal and, and completing, a, a, achieving some sort of, you know, closure in the way that it isn't just sitting around in the bar talking and not having a goal you know we've become very goal orientated as a society i think but what's wrong with just shooting the breeze and and uh, you know enjoying each other's company and being playful and witty and funny you know that it seems to me is as important as having a goal if not more important you know <laughs> that sense of betweenness and community i find that some of these concepts and and i want to segue into part four of the book a little bit, but I I did want to jump on this one topic before we move on. Because when I hear this idea of like shooting the breeze and taking time, I think a lot more of, you know, non-Western or maybe even non-Northern Hemisphere types of communities. You know, when I spend time in Italy, our lunches and dinners are with family. They're two, three hours, you know, there there's not yeah. this idea of running to Pret, grabbing a sandwich, eating at your desk, you know, while you're clicking on stuff. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Like, it seems Absolutely. like some of these concepts are more intense in what I would consider Western slash Northern. I agree. I agree. I agree. Realities. Yeah. And probably in Anglo-Saxon kind of, you know, I'm thinking US and the UK, you know, that kind of culture, probably more so than Italy. I don't know. But, you know, still seems to be time for, for family and, and, and so on in, in Italy. But look, I mean, it's difficult to generalize, obviously. But I think it's interesting because there's a, two things that McGilchrist says on this, which are quite interesting. One is that in Eastern cultures, there's a more holistic way of looking at the world, less sort of individualistic, and that, that is more attuned to sort of a right brain way of thinking. So, you know, 
know, he, he talks about Japan and China and how hope we might learn something perhaps from those countries. And But he also talks about, as an interesting example, you mentioned Italy and, and long meals. He talks about a study that was done to show that you know, giving up that sense of community, you know, long lunches and the sense of, you know, your brethren and fellow family, you know, around you is as bad for you as taking up smoking. You know, it's, it has an effect on your health if you don't have that kind of thing. So it's extremely important for our physical well-being to try and keep that and retain it and maintain it, sustain it. Otherwise, you know, we go to an early grave. So it's important for our health as much as is going to the gym. <laughs> In part four, I wanted to ask more about this left brain perspective. And I was curious if, does it feel like the left brain type of activities, the reinforcement of those activities comes through being more well-funded, more focused on producing those types of behaviors? Because it, it seems like this idea of shareholder value is the predominant way in which we've chosen to organize our business relationships and our business relationships are now everywhere. Everything is a business. A hobby needs to become mm, a, way of, a monetized thing, yeah. right? Mm. Um, so I'm curious about a potential way forward given the perceived strength of that other side from a Again, a financial and reward basis, not well, I in think, like good side, bad side. <laughs> no, there's a, there's a, no. You're right. I, I mean, there's something seductive about scale, productivity. You know, being able to create more widgets at a lower price, and there's an allure and an ease with which you can agree with a kind of logical, rational proposition. But actually, these things don't. You know, I mean, they. They can create value, of course, up to a point, but you, you still need to have this sort of a cognizance of the right brain and take, and that's what the book's about, is taking due care and attention when it comes to craft, you know, put yourself some in, into the work in some way, you know, and it will be it will be rewarded. You've got to, you know, engineer, engineer is the wrong word perhaps, but you've got to sort of draw on personal experience and craft and your experience with people and, and relationships to create great advertising. Music is also a part of it. In fact, I write a manifesto at the end of the book, you know, where I talk about the things that if you were setting up an ad agency now, what you'd need to focus on in terms of your create, you know, your creative style and how you go about it. Because the left brain is likes to take control, and it it's sort of you know you see this in patients, split brain patients. I've mentioned it in the book. You know, if you get split brain patients who don't who've had their corpus callosum split, so each half of the brain is you know directly manipulating the other half of the body, you know, as it does the right brain, the left hand, and so on. What you find is that if you try and get people to create, do a creative task, i.e. kind of like put blocks together to form a, an overall shape, this is a quite a right brain task. So the right brain controlling the left hand can do it really quickly you know, with a matter of seconds, really. But the right brain, unless unless uh, the left brain, unless you restrain the right hand, you know, it tries to get in the way and push to take over and get rid of the left hand controlled by the right brain. So, you know, the left brain likes to take control, likes to exert control. And you see it in chapter four, I talk a lot about this, about this urge for specialization, standardization, all of these things which are essentially efficient, about efficiency playing out in advertising. And the effect, of course, is not good, as I show. And you end up with flat 
abstracted and devitalized work that doesn't move people. So that's, you know, that's what happens and what is happening, I think, in the industry today. And people, it feels like specialization is also, a, it's sometimes perceived as expertise. So <laughs> I'm a expert in this particular industry or this particular type of advertising. And so that's coveted when it would seem that in a world that is, despite the cultural context, it's very complex. We should want folks who are maybe a little bit more of generalists, that they can maybe see broader perspectives than the one narrow path. Yes, I totally agree. Totally agree. You know, in in today's specialized world, we've never needed more generalists, people who can see things from alternative perspectives, people who've got breadth of experience and can see things that a specialist never will because a specialist only operates in his or her very narrow field. And, you know, you kind of, we need this more in medicine. We need it everywhere. We tend, the left brain likes to specialize and go down a narrow, ever narrower route and break things down into smaller, smaller parts. It's very reductionist, but actually we need breadth to do great creative work. And I, I cite a, an example in the book of this, in the comics, back to Marvel again, but in the comic industry where people actually showed the opposite of what they planned to show. And that's that, that creativity and memorable and successful comics are kind of based on, are made by people with range and individuals with range rather than a group of people with the same theoretical range of, of genres. You know, it's the one person, you know, with many can see things from one perspective, you know, everything from one perspective will create more interesting work than a group of people with, you know, the same theoretical range. You know, part five really starts to talk about potential solutions. There's this concept of centering awe, you know, bringing people into an experience where they're going to be legitimately excited. I had an opportunity, several opportunities to talk to Douglas Rushkoff, for example, and in his recent book, Team Human, he talks a lot about this idea of awe, that we're constantly trying to replicate that experience, but falling short. That's what AI is all about. That's what all these other things is about. They're not the experience, but they're the closest thing to the experience. So in that part five, you give like a bunch of solutions, this idea of joy being a part of people's conversations, internal joy or joy in other people's misfortune, yeah. perhaps. Humor, Humor yeah, being right. a part that's of right. it. So Ecstasy, bliss. Can we make, and these are are terms that I think people in business don't feel comfortable with. They're not comfortable with these ideas and this terminology, but it's the terminology that really seems to matter. Do you think there's a way that we can change the advertising space in a systemic way that can embrace this type of language, these types of ideas going forward? Well, I think I think it's happened in the past. You know, the so-called golden age of advertising certainly, you know, happened in the UK, the seventies and eighties, and I think, of course, in the US. And you know, I think other markets today, you know, probably doing it better. You know, so Brazil, India, you know, there are in- interesting work coming out of the creative agencies in those parts of the world. So yes, I think we can. I think we've just got to kind of, we will eventually, it will ultimately swing back. And I think we're seeing brands today, you know, sort of starting to recognize the the limitations of, of performance, so-called performance marketing and swinging back and understanding the importance of brand and also reach and mass media. And that's, you know, that's 
it will happen. But in terms of your, you know, kind of can business ever embrace these things? Well, I think it, it needs to understand that they're important. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote the book is to give some give some evidence to show it. You know, and I talk a lot about humor in the book being the, the creative's perhaps most useful tool. And, you know, humor gives brands, projects a sense of proportion and intelligence, you know, for the brand. And it makes people sit up, take notice and remember. So it's extremely important. Yeah. I mean, like I said before, I love the book. I thought it touched on a lot of things that I'm seeing, not just in advertising, but in so many different medium. I tend to focus very broadly. So I appreciate when I see that same perspective, but also with a, a really strong academic rigor. So congratulations on the book. I Thank loved you, it. What I want to do right now is jump in. We have two segments before we wrap up. Ah, yes. So the first one is Off the Dome. And okay. off the dome is just rapid fire questions. First thing that comes to your mind, feel free to, to let loose. And I got to admit, this is going to be sort of a UK edition. Okay. <laughs> and, I, and I feel I have family in the UK, I have family in London, I have family in Bath. So I feel very comfortable kind of taking a piss. So, you know. Okay, go, go, go. <laughs> okay, some of them are very easy. Rolling Stones okay. or the Beatles? Ah, uh, um, Stones. Blur or Oasis? Um, blur. Wow, okay. <laughs> okay, what is the worst dessert? Black pudding or fruitcake? Oh, well, black pudding's not really a dessert, is it? <laughs> um, uh, but I, I, uh, I quite like them both. Uh, I think black pudding, I would say. Okay. And you talked about fluent devices in the book. Yeah. And fluent devices are these symbols or mascots or tools that can use to tell a story. Hmm? What is your favorite fluent device? Oh, geez. God, that's difficult. Uh, from any period, any time. Any uh, period, any time. Uh, oh, that's a, that's a tough one. Well, I'll go with a current one that's still going. And it's the, I think it's probably the Specsavers, the one in the UK for opticians. And it's a scenario rather than a fluent, rather than a character. And it's, you know, every time they show someone who should really have got his eyes checked out at Specsavers because they do something silly and they can't see what they're doing. And the tagline is, you know, should have gone to Specsavers. And it's very clever, very long running campaign. So, yeah, that would be one. All right. Awesome. Awesome. And now I'm going to get to the drop. Ah. And... The drop is something that I'm asking all guests to share. A piece of work could come from anywhere that inspires them or that they think our listeners should check out. And so I'll give mine first huh? and then I'll cue yours up. So right. given the fact that we mentioned this guy before um, in our conversation, Leonard Schlein, he's one of my favorite writers and thinkers passed away many years Renaissance ago. Renaissance man with range, yeah. perspective, yeah. Yeah, did leverage. Exactly. Surgeon, you know, exactly. inventor. Came out of, you know, given his expertise, again, that idea of specialization mm. and his output as a writer, I find it to be astounding. And so the book that I'm going to recommend in particular, because it's very connected, I believe, to this conversation is The Alphabet Versus the Goddess, the conflict between word and image. Mm. And it's by Leonard Schlein. So that's my drop Terrific. for this episode. Terrific. Well, my drop would be related in a sense. And it's uh, some of your listeners may have come across it, but a recent book called Range by David Epstein. And he talks about the importance of range again and uh, in a specialist world, you know, and just how we need breadth of experience and over kind of 
heavy specialization to make something of yourself in today's world. That sounds great. Now I have a book to check out as well. I'm going to add it to my piles and piles of books. But no, this was great. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too, Phil. Thanks very much for having me on. Really enjoyed it. It's been a pleasure having Orlando Wood join me on The Deep Dive. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. You can also follow me on Twitter via Far Flung Phil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.